I would say to families that no matter what is happening and how awful this feels in whatever place that you're in, remember that you are not alone on this journey and that the rare disease community is such a pillar of strength and resilience and unwavering support and that your story matters and that your voice is powerful and that any piece of your advocacy journey can create change. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Ki Chan, the co-host of the Newborn Screening Spotlight Podcast. If you need a boost of inspiration, a bit of laughter, and a lot of intention, listen to our special guest on our podcast, Effie Parks, who transformed her experience raising a son with a rare disease to helping others by sharing their story on her podcast, Once Upon a Gene. The best way to describe Effie may be as the rare disease parent's best friend and greatest resource. She was born in Montana, where she was raised with her 12 siblings. After moving to Washington and marrying her husband, they were blessed with the birth of their son, Ford Cannon Parks. When she learned that Ford had been born with an extremely rare genetic condition, known as CTNNB1 syndrome, she immersed herself into the world of advocacy. Now, she's the host of her own podcast, Once Upon a Gene, where she speaks to others about their journey through life with rare disease. Since the launch of the podcast, Once Upon a Gene was awarded Best in Show Podcast by WeGo Health. Podcast magazine recognized Effie as one of the 40 under 40 podcasters and has been nominated for two Champions of Hope Awards from Global Genes. Her mission is to learn, lift voices of the community, connect people to resources, and to leave this world better than she found it for others in the rare disease world. Hello, this is the Newborn Streeting Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MBSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. 
Welcome everyone to the Newborn Screening Spotlight. We're so excited today because we have a leader in the rare disease community. So I want to introduce Effie Parks. So we're so excited to have Effie on our podcast today. And Effie, I'm going to start out with um, how we sort of stumbled upon your brilliance and, you know, just got to know you a little bit. So Effie, you're the host of the podcast called Once Upon a Gene. And during this podcast, you speak and motivate others who are on this journey of life living with rare disease. And your mission is to learn, lift the voices of the community, connect people to resources, and just in general, leave this world a better place than you found it. I often find myself on the weekend listening and catching up and being, oh my gosh, which episode is she going to upload this week? Which one can I listen to? And it's so fun also to catch up with all the podcasts that you have online so we can sort of hear the journey of parents. And there's some special magic you have in finding parents who are also researchers like myself who, um, you know, are sort of playing dual roles and working to advance understanding of the condition that their family might be living with. So could you tell our listeners, we want to start out with today with what inspired you to start your podcast, Once Upon a Gene? Hi, Key. Hi, Amy. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me. It's such an honor to be on your show. And I'm so grateful to you for being a listener as well. It really means a lot to me uh, to have sort of that outside perspective listening in too. Uh, creating Once Upon a Gene, you know, I was a new parent. Uh, I had this beautiful baby who was sick right when he was born. And like many parents went through this, you know, diagnostic process and it was super isolating as a new parent and it was really scary and it was so much different than I had expected. Right. Um, and I found myself just kind of getting a little more separated from, you know, my friends and my family and just daily lives because I was so engulfed in taking care of my sick child. Um, and I felt so alone and I felt so helpless. Um, and once I started like trying to do something about that. You know, I started doing some digging and I started realizing that I wasn't alone and that there were other families out there. And even just like that little teeny bit made such a huge difference to me. And it was such a relief that I knew I wanted to create a platform where other people dealing with rare disease could come together and we could share our stories and we could support each other and learn from one another and I really wanted to amplify other people's voices, right, um, from all walks of our life, because I don't think you have to share a diagnosis to understand our daily lives. I wanted the medical community to be able to peek in and my friends and family who were constantly asking questions and how they could help. I wanted to just like have this place of this home base where people could peek in, whether they were the families who needed the help the most or others looking to support them. And ultimately, I wanted to make a positive impact, right? Um, by providing Once Upon a Gene to let all these people come together and share their experiences. We just learn so much from each other. And I think it builds so much strength and resilience in our community. Well, and if anyone's gotten a chance to listen to Once Upon a Gene, you just have a natural style. So can you tell us in, in high school, were you sort of in theater? Were you used to giving speeches? What was your life like before you became a rare disease mom? <laughs> That's so funny. 
Uh, thank you. People ask me this question a lot. Um, and it, I think like anyone, you, you have like this imposter syndrome of like, this isn't what I'm trained to do. I have no idea what I'm actually doing. Um, I'm just going for it because I believe in it so much. But I think if I was to attribute it to anything that perhaps helped me be able to have a conversation with people was really just my life experience. I'm one of 13 children. So there's a colorful home life there. Um, and in my job life, right? Like I waited tables, I bartended, I was a hairstylist for over a decade. So I was always kind of on the receiving end of listening to people's stories. Um, I joke now that I'm actually the hairstylist of the rare disease community because I'm still getting everyone's personal stories and um, I'm just there to listen to people and uh, give them a place to kind of have that open open dialogue Um so yeah, I guess I've just sort of been a listener for a long time and I know how valuable it is for people to feel heard. Effie, thank you so much for sharing how you started your podcast. Um, you just mentioned um, your baby was diagnosed with a rare disease and it's called CTNNB1 syndrome. Can you tell us what led to the diagnosis and what happened next? Yeah, I'll try to make this part as short as possible. Um yeah, I was pregnant with with my son Ford and I thought everything was perfect. Um, you know, I heard things at every appointment that Ford was small, but that was totally cool because I'm small. So I just thought everything was beautiful, right? Um, I felt great. I had thick hair for the first time. I got a seat on the bus every day on the way to work. Like everything was great. Um, but the moment that uh, I was, I was at my last appointment and the midwife just freaked out. I mean, it was visible how upset she was when she was looking at some notes on maybe my measurements. And she said that we were inducing my son immediately and he wasn't due for two more days. And so I thought, well, that's strange. Um, I said, why, why do we have to induce him if he's coming out? And she goes, because he could die. And at this point I was like, okay, I don't know what everyone's problem is because this is clearly fine. Um, I was excited. I went in. Um, I was excited to meet my new baby. The moment he came out, um, it was very weird. And it was almost like everyone in the room knew something and nobody dared to tell me because someone had dropped the ball in my prenatal care. Uh, and it just kind of got weirder and weirder. Um, Ford wasn't able to eat right away. We couldn't get him to swallow or suck or do any of those things. Um, so we were visiting lactation and doctors a couple times a week for a few months, uh, being told that it was probably me holding him wrong or me worrying too much. And ultimately it took about four months for someone to go, oh, he's not eating and he's not he's not gaining any weight. And this is really bad. We should take him to the hospital. Uh, so that was a great moment where finally someone was listening and Ford was uh, admitted into Seattle Children's Hospital, which got everyone looking at him um, and eventually got us to genetics almost right away. Uh, he had low muscle tone. I'd never heard any of these words until the hospital stay. Hypotonia, dystonia, uh, infantile spasm stuff. Like none of this was ever said to me until he was in the hospital. Um, and then genetics had an idea of what they thought Ford had. Unfortunately, um, they said it to us too, which did cause a lot of worry for the next year, but we waited for his whole exome uh, sequencing test, which ultimately did come back positive, like you said, for CT and NB1. So much shorter and probably easier, I guess, than a lot of families uh, in their diagnostic odyssey, but still really traumatic and confusing and disjointed. 
So, Abby, that's such a moving story. Um, and it, it sounds like you understood what was going on with your son, at least had a diagnosis relatively early. And we know researchers discovered that genetic testing for CTNNB1 syndrome, but there's no single treatment for that disease. And each of the symptoms that are associated with, you know, as a geneticist, when you have more than one system involved or more than one symptom, you call it a syndrome. Um, but on the bright side, we know that uh, your son's disease is a good candidate for gene therapy or genetic replacement therapy. And so it's really exciting to hear about the latest developments and research. Um, how do you stay up to speed on what's the latest in research in your son's um, disease? And how does that impact your caregiving for Forrest and for your other child? I think I've definitely been engulfed in staying up to date with everything in rare disease in general, but with my son, just simply because of this podcast, right? And inserting myself in the rare disease community so deliberately. And um, so it, I'm constantly surrounded by it. So there's one reason. Um, but these patient advocacy groups, if we are so lucky to have them, right, for our rare disease groups are one of the most valuable things that us as families could grab a hold of. Uh, for one, you have all of, well, hopefully as many of the patients as possible, like grouped into this Facebook group typically where they're sharing information. They're sharing the medications that are working or not working for their kids. They're talking about symptoms that are popping up. They're talking about um, how they're getting their kids to sleep, how they're sleeping, uh, you know, how they're getting to school, what sort of supports these kids need in particular, especially maybe as they're getting a little older. So there's just this wealth of knowledge and lived experience and actual natural history data, right? Like right there with the families. So it's the most information that you're probably ever going to get about your disease, especially if it's a new one like CTNNB1. So I would say that's the most valuable place to be, period, is surrounded by the families who have kids that are living like yours. Um, and then also to really connect with other families and educate yourself as much as possible, uh, whether that's joining, you know, conferences, even like the one you you hold quarterly, I believe, Amy, like showing up at conferences, whether you can do it in person or online, is so valuable. Social media, wow. One of the most transformational things, I think, uh, that benefits family like families like ours to be able to connect with other people from across the world who know what you're going through because Lord knows you don't have the time to go meet up with them in person most of the time or the ability to. Um, so really having that direct line to someone who gets it is so powerful to your well-being and your family family's well-being. So just really kind of opening the door to let people in, but also to cast a line out to someone who can help you in one way or another, even if it's just passively listening to a podcast like Once Upon a Gene, knowing that that's there and that you can dip into it when you have the ability to ingest it and digest it is so important. So, Effie, that's such great advice. Um, but, you know, and as moms of kids who have rare disease or, you know, some symptoms that are still trying to be diagnosed, they always say, 
don't search the internet, you know, because you'll, you know, they're worried about what parents are going to find. But, you know, myself and yourself, the internet was a godsend. So what advice do you give to new parents about how to use internet-based resources? And do you have any um, tips to share with our listeners? Yeah. I mean, I think that there are definitely places that maybe aren't so healthy, right? Um, And I think that if you are being intentional about what you're searching for, it's pretty easy to evaluate the tone of a group. Um, And I think that more often happens in Facebook groups that get particularly large. Um, But finding people on social media through specific hashtags that maybe you want to learn about, whether it's epilepsy or, you know, uh, feeding tubes or durable medical equipment, like whatever it is, um, seeking it out specifically like that, um, looking for podcasts, right? Like mine and joining organizations like Global Genes and Nord and the Courageous Parents Network. Like, I think that there are people in place that are really loud on social media, myself included, that if you find the right people, you can find where it best fits you and the way that you connect with whoever is talking. Um, I think that if you're finding yourself reading posts in groups that are kind of breaking your heart or making you feel so defeated, it's definitely time to pause those groups, leave those groups. Um, because that's that's not helping anyone. Um, I think it's pretty pretty simple to find the right people on social media at this point, especially if you just, I don't know, I guess I'm repeating myself there, but evaluate the tone in a group and make sure that you're taking care of yourself and being compassionate to yourself. And if anything is making you feel icky, it's time to go. I have to say, Effie, that's such great advice. And, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a bit older than you. Um, and so I just feel like there's this new generation of moms and you're one of the leaders in that new generation where, you know, anything's possible. Um, let's use the internet. Let's use advocacy groups. Let's talk to pharma. Let's push the needle um, and really make transformational change. Um, so thank you for that. One thing you mentioned, you know, as you sort of shared about, you know, getting um, advice on how to get your child to sleep or how do you do transportation, you know, is natural history. So in the research world, Dr. Chan and I have been trying to build for over a decade natural history registries to be able to capture what's important to understand more about these diseases and to understand from a parent perspective what does a good health outcome look like? Um, you know, not only what are the medical facts and what's the genetics, what's the pathophysiology, but, you know, do you think there are any groups out there that are sort of doing these patient registries or longitudinal research or natural history studies in a way that's transformational or in a way that you've thought, yes, that's the way to do it? Mm. Well, I think one of them is obviously the patient advocacy groups themselves. Uh, They have every piece of information that one would need to know. Uh, Second, I think Citizen is doing some very cool work, um, and they're doing stuff a little differently right now. Um, So Citizen is collecting, you know, various rare diseases, and they're, you tell them, you know, you 
hi, this is Ford. I'm his parent. Here's his birth certificate. These are all the places that he's ever been seen by any medical professional. And what Citizen does is they go out and they collect every single medical record that exists on your child. And not just the ones that show up in your MyChart, but the backend stuff, the stuff that the doctors are writing, you know, the opinion pieces, all of that stuff that you don't, don't see. They organize all of the MRIs, all of the EEGs, and they create these dashboards um, especially if you have enough patients signed up who are all doing this together where they can make graphs for you to see sort of the natural history of this disease as it's been going since the child has been seen, right? Not just these specific one-offs every year if you're lucky to be able to do a natural history study. Um, so it's collecting it from the moment they ever had care uh, for as long as the child lives, uh, which I think is super powerful and unique. And you know, a lot of people still don't even know that uh, many medical records are destroyed after a couple years, depending on what facility you're in, what state you're in, and that stuff's gone forever. So things like Citizen collecting them the way that they do is really, really transformational. And I'm excited to see how how it pushes stuff forward for our kids. That's really exciting. Um, you know, and thinking about, you know, sort of the world of newborn screening that he and I do our research in. And, you know, the, the great thing about newborn screening is it's population-based. So, you know, every, every newborn or almost every newborn in the United States is offered a newborn screen, but we don't screen for everything. And we're sort of hitting the wall of possibilities um, between what is built into state-based panels and what the potential is with the more we learn about genetics and genomics and not just using genomics to screen, but also to diagnose and potentially design a gene therapy or an N of one therapy. Um, in thinking about, you know, sort of the possibility of newborn screening and maybe someday even prenatal screening and treatment, um, it would be those natural history studies or following those kids and families to, to figure out, did it make a difference? And across the country, does a newborn that gets screened in Florida do as well as a newborn in Idaho or Iowa? You know, really building in those support systems for families and communities when they're dealing with a rare disease. Can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of community support do you think that we need to build, you know, if we have the day where we could use genomic sequencing and potentially diagnose, um, like for your son, early on in the neonatal period, you know, tell right away what he had, what do we need to build to be able to make sure that we not only diagnose and treat early, but that we manage and support families throughout the lifespan? This is such a difficult question because I know the way things are. And I, I know I've had a conversation with you, Amy, on how uh, much of a crazy maker the system is to me as a parent. Um, I, I believe so strongly in patient advocacy groups and what they bring to the table. Um, I do not believe that a family has to have a treatment available to be able to get an answer or a genetic test or a newborn screening panel for the disorder that their kid potentially could have. I think that there is so much power and 
um, community and more precision medical care and just less chance of families breaking apart in a hundred different ways if they have the opportunity to know what their child has instead of going through this odyssey and the gaslighting and the uncertainty and the wasted money and the wasted time. I think there's so much value in recognizing what a patient advocacy group brings to the table, even if there isn't a treatment available. I think that families having the opportunity to contribute to research and to, you know, have these families next to them who know what they're going through, who can give them advice, be able to take information that they have from their natural history to their doctors to get better care, quicker care. I just would like to see the entire system reorganized and revamped and rebranded. I know that is like a not a realistic thing to say and just have done. Um, but I do believe that I think some of the I think some of the ethics committees making the decisions to this aren't necessarily encompassing the voices of families who have gone through this, this diagnostic odyssey, who have lost children to it, um, because I think we should be trusted a lot more with being offered the education around a disorder and the opportunity to move mountains if we have to. I don't know if that answered your question, um, but I am definitely frustrated with uh, the way the system currently works, or at least the pace of it. Yeah, I mean, I think we we share your concerns, and I I think you know I think everybody across the newborn screening community shares your concerns um, because we're all trying to you know make sure that every newborn has the opportunity to be diagnosed and treated before the onset of symptoms. And I like to emphasize, you know, manage throughout the lifespan for comorbidities. You know, um, I had a little, um, when I was in kindergarten, I had a classmate who passed away from cystic fibrosis in second grade. And in, you know, in the 1970s, that was the lifespan and I'll never forget it. Um, and now we know that there are children who are living well into adulthood with cystic fibrosis, but they have a ton of medical concerns. Um, it's not, you know, most of the conditions that are part of newborn screening are treatable, but not curable. And so I think that treatment part and supporting families and their extended family and their communities, as we all sort of lean on our communities and our extended family to just get through each day. I think, you know, we really have to call on the leaders in our government, you know, from CDC to HRSA to NIH and to others to really put in supports for families um, like ours. And I love that you emphasize that. And I think we have to keep elevating those voices and keep pushing the needle on, you know, what's possible. Yeah. And I would really argue that patient advocacy groups are a form of a treatment available, um, which is why I think these pilot programs for diseases who don't have a clinical treatment available should be considered because having that community base and getting that uh, harnessing the power of having the knowledge about your kid's disease and um, the support just from those people who get it and being able to show up to your medical appointments more informed. I think that having a patient support community is a treatment and I think that should be considered. Um, I don't think a child needs to have, you know, a special diet that is 
their, you know, PKU specifically or Zolgensma or something to be able to have the answer rather than have to wait seven years to get it. Yep. We, we totally agree. Um, so Dr. Chan, I'll let you ask the next question. Effie, thank you so much for sharing your process of caregiving to your child and just your passion to help other moms and families who are in this similar situation and how there needs to be a change in the system. Um, as I was looking at your podcast website, on your Once Upon a Time gene, you shared that the movie Back to the Future and especially the main cast, Michael J. Fox, has inspired you. Uh, love to hear more about your inspiration and can you elaborate in what way Michael J. Fox inspired you to our listeners? Oh man. Well, yeah, that blog kind of talks about like what I used to think about Michael J. Fox and why I liked him to then becoming a rare disease parent and being like, oh my gosh. So definitely read the blog if you want to know what Key's talking about exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, Michael J. Fox, oh my gosh. He, first of all, as a just a parent and a family man, like I just love watching the way he shares his fatherhood journey. Um, but he, yeah, he's a Parkinson's patient and he started one of the most successful patient advocacy groups that we know of. Um, and he writes so much and his newest book especially really moved me. You know, he talks about all the challenges that he faces and more importantly, he talks about the strategies that he uses to maintain his fulfilling, beautiful life that he also has. You know, and I just think that something really special about him with being so famous is that he has completely used his platform to drive positive change. And that is something that I think is a duty of all of us to do if we can. And I just, I love the way he spreads awareness and hope. Um, I know so many people who look up to him as a patient or a caregiver. And again, he's done so many things with science and the other stuff, but I really love how personal he brings it and how he talks about moments with his beautiful daughters and, you know, the reason that his relationship with his wife is still so beautiful and successful. He really like takes us down to like the day-to-day -day stuff. Um, and I think that's really difficult for a lot of people to do, but especially brave of someone who's in the spotlight like Michael J. Fox. And he finds this beautiful light in this entire experience of him living with Parkinson's and not in an annoying Pollyanna way, you know, um, which I think that we all have to do because there is so much joy in this world. And we do have to find that because it would be so easy to be dragged down if you weren't intentional and really finding those moments to pay attention to it. And he just does it so well and he's adorable. He's Michael J. Fox. So Effie, can you tell us a little bit about what's been going on in your life lately. Um, so we're recording this podcast in the summertime. I'm sure your kids are at home. Your schedule's a little bit differently, but when you sort of reflect on your life, when you can take a breath and are able to do that, what's been going on with you that you expected um, this time of your life and some things that you maybe didn't expect? Or can you just tell our listeners a little bit about your day-to-day? -day? Well, I think... After Ford was born and diagnosed with a rare disease, the idea of what to expect when you're expecting went beyond those first few years of motherhood. And I practice to not really have expectations so much anymore and to simply just make peace uh, with each day. Um, 
I've gotten better at putting in supports, you know, for us to get through the day. Um, it also leaves leaves space to just really be pleasantly surprised when things are so good and to laugh as much as possible when things are not so good um, because medical parenting is really hard. And the less blows and sort of kicks, you know, down the stairs, I think the better I think expectations are. Um, and we just kind of learn to, I don't know, let them have less hold on us, I guess. Um, what I am sort of seeing that I guess I don't know, maybe I didn't expect, is how much better I'm getting at really kind of going and zoning in in the moment. You know, whether it's just me watching like a curl on my daughter's face blowing in the wind or, you know, enjoying the 15 minutes that I get to go on a walk with Ford uninterrupted. Um, so I really just, I get better at maximizing those things. Um, maybe things I didn't expect. They say it gets easier and it does, but it's still so incredibly hard and you're doing the same things over and over. And the grind is what I'm surprised about. You know, you'd think you'd get better at organizing the medical appointments and you'd think you'd get better at getting the wheelchair fixed and you'd think you'd get better at those IEP meetings. But I don't know if you necessarily do. I think maybe the hangover of the anxiety and the difficulty level of them maybe get shortened, but they're still just as hard as they always were. Um, so I guess those things together just really enforce um, the first thing I was talking about, about really just not hanging on too tight about the things that could disappoint you and to uh, find the bright spots along the way. As you know, Newmark's Screening Translational Research Network, MBSTRN, creates tools and resources that help stakeholders to advance newborn screening research. How could we, MBSTRN, and other organizations such as the Rare Disease Clinical Research Network, which is supported by the National Center for Advancing Translational Science, NCAD, and other organizations that you mentioned throughout this podcast, help you and our community to advance rare disease awareness? Well, what way isn't there that you could do it is the question. Um, mm -hmm. I would love the visibility to be more so. I think I think at this point it's still pretty niche, right? To think about um, newborn screening and why should you care about it? But especially as a rare disease parent or family, once you are living this life and then that window is sort of opened, you realize the possibilities of sort of uniting these worlds, right? And how important it is for even just your little group. Um, I think it would be awesome to hear y'all at more com at more conferences, on more panels that are out front in our families. Um, I don't think many parents are necessarily looking for you, especially if they have their diagnosis and they're on their way. Um, and even like kind of putting a pin in patient advocacy groups that need more patients, right? Because you have to have all of this, all of this science and research going on to even have the ability to get on the RUSP, right? So you need more patients. You need that history. You need the disease knowledge. So finding more patients is really in the best interest of all of us um, in moving things forward with newborn screening too. Um, I think that it's also a human, <laughs> like a human connection. I mean, I know so many families who have lost a child because their kid was born in the wrong state. And I know families who got 
treatment for uh, diseases that would have surely killed them a couple years later. Um, so I think when people hear those stories, no matter what is going on in your life, that you can empathize with that and you can maybe take action because of that. So I really just think being at more places, talking about it outside of the conferences would be really beneficial because I think a lot of people would really care about this subject. And obviously being on my show, I'm going to have you on our show so you can talk about this too. Um, yeah, I think that was really helpful. I think, you know, I think there's always more to do. Um, but I think connecting patients and families and communities with the researchers and with the public health programs that, you know, I almost sometimes wish newborn screening wasn't called newborn screening because they think it's the screen, but it's a system. Um, and it's a system that's supposed to begin before birth with education. And then there's the screening, but then there's supposed to be timely diagnosis and treatment and management throughout the lifespan to ensure that every newborn has the best health outcome that's possible. And we, we know that that doesn't happen. Um, and so I think there's so much work for all of us to do. And so in thinking about everything that we have to do, um, what can our listeners expect from Effie Parks in the next few years? Well, hopefully I'm going to be in your face just as much as I already am. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm so passionate about talking about all of these challenges and these wins and these amazing patient populations and helping to educate families, but also giving them sort of offerings, right, of how they can best show up to advocate, however that is for their lives. And not feeling intimidated by any other type of advocacy because we need all of these for this whole circle to work. Um, so I I really just, man, I don't even know. Um, I want families to come to Once Upon a Gene and make friends with the people that they're hearing, but to also be inspired to do something about it, even if it's the smallest thing in the privacy of their own home with their family. Um, I just want to continue to sort of be that conduit between families who are in the trenches to the amazing people like you who are helping create systems and maintain them and make them better to the clinicians, to the researchers, and keep that direct line and make people not feel intimidated or unworthy of getting involved um, because we're all here to do the same thing. And I just want people to feel safe and empowered. So Effie, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. And as we're wrapping up the podcast, what is one final thought you want to leave our listeners with? I would say to families that no matter what is happening and how awful this feels in whatever place that you're in, remember that you are not alone on this journey and that the rare disease community is such a pillar of strength and resilience and unwavering support and that your story matters and that your voice is powerful, and that any piece of your advocacy journey can create change. And so I, I want people to know that the connections that you can make and the friends that you can find who have shared experiences and 
I don't know. It, I know that by lifting each other up that we can create a stronger and more compassionate world. I know that to be true. And I think together we can sort of rewrite this narrative and make this better for the families that are coming after us. And I want you to know that there are so many beacons of hope here and this community is so united and we face adversity that people have no clue about. And I think we're all determined to make this place better and to impact the lives of our families and the ones coming after us. And we have to build a better future for our kids and the future is bright. I think Effie, one of your special gifts is just making people feel seen. And so I know for myself and for Key and for many families, you know, sort of experiencing our child's growth and, you know, challenges that, you know, you just have this way to connect with people. And there's such an optimism in your voice, even though we know that, you know, you've, you've had a lot of struggles. Um, and so we, so thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom and your stories today. And we'll be so excited to see what's next for you. Um, we end every podcast with sort of a signature question. And so Effie, what does newborn screening research mean to you? Newborn screening research fosters a culture of continuous evolution and revolution for rare disease families. Right now, I think it's too slow and there's too many bureaucratic barriers. Um, but I do believe that the families involved are stronger than they think they are. And I think that all of us coming together as stakeholders can help make a difference in newborn screening and the system itself. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together let's, let's increase, increase the, the impact, impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories. stories.